and on as I read Romans chapter 4 verses 13 through 17 now. As we continue to work through Romans chapter 4, this great exposition of the doctrine of justification by faith as found in the Old Testament. You don't have to turn to the New Testament to find its first appearance. You'll find it as early as Genesis 15 and all through, all through from there on. But looking back to the promise that God made to Abraham both in Genesis 12 but also in Genesis 15 which he believed and believing was justified. Paul says the promise, verse 13, that he would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise made of no effect because the law brings about wrath. For where there is no law there is no transgression. Therefore, it is of faith that it might be according to grace so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of him whom he believed, God, who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did. And let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the promises which you gave to Abraham and which you have fulfilled and are fulfilling even now in our midst. We as his spiritual children and heirs. But we ask you, O God, that you might uh, continue not only to fulfill this promise, but to, well, to bring the promise to us through your word in the same way you did to Abraham, that we might with him believe and to walk by faith as, as he did and so be his true children. And help us to that end, O oh God, not only through the reaching, but also uh, through the preaching, uh, the, the reading, I mean, but also through the preaching of, of your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we continue to look at the promise that was made to Abraham and, and in believing was justified, Abraham believed in his faith, was counted to him as righteousness. In other words, he was justified by faith. Genesis 15, verse 6. Uh, I, I want to, to remind you of the two, the two key points of argumentation, let us say, that Paul has been preaching up to chapter 4. The first of which he states in verse 18 of chapter 1, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, which leads him to conclude based upon that point in chapter 3, verse 19 and 20, that all men are condemned by the law, no one is justified, and so on and so forth. And that leads him in chapter 3, having stated the bad news, to state the good news as corresponding in opposite fashion to the bad news, that uh, chapter 3, verse 28, if you're looking for the summary of the book of Romans, chapter 3, verse 28, is indeed the summary Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. For the obvious reason that no man is justified by the deeds of the law. He's only condemned. How then might he be justified? He is justified by faith alone. The concern of chapter 4, having stated the way of salvation in chapter 3, as the good news which answers to the bad news, the concern of chapter 4 is to validate this from the Old Testament. In other words, why does it matter how Abraham or David was justified? And the answer is 
because this proves that what Paul was preaching was nothing new, but in fact it was always true ever since sin entered into the world. This was the only manner by which any man has ever been saved, going all the way back to Abraham and even before him. And the primary thing in view in the life of Abraham, in the Abrahamic narrative, this is certainly clear when you study it, It was impossible not to highlight this in just about every sermon when I preached it. And Paul pinpoints this, the primary thing in the life of Abraham, the first man to be justified, uh, not literally, but in, in the sense of what scripture says about him, and the first man to be circumcised. In many ways, the prototype then, in terms of justification and the sacraments, the primary thing in view of his life was faith. From the, from the human standpoint, what defined the life of Abraham was faith. If you read Genesis 12 through 22, you will see that clear, clearly. But on the other side of that, the corresponding primary thing in the view of God, as he related to Abraham as his creator and redeemer, was the promise. And the point that Paul is making here in emphasizing faith is the way that faith on the part of man corresponds to the promise on the part of God. And it was the promise that Abraham believed and believing that promise was justified. And really from verse 13 to the end of the chapter, that's the thing that's in view. Abraham's faith in the promise or the word of God and how it was that that faith not only justified him, but defined the whole course of his life. Yet to establish that Abraham was justified by faith, even in the Old Testament, does not settle the full matter. For Abraham was a Jew, and the full scope of the promise with regard to his children was not yet clear. Did that mean that only the Jews could be justified by faith? This is what Paul deals with in the prior verses, verses 9 through 12, which we saw last time. The question which Paul answers, since Abraham was justified while uncircumcised, that means he is the father, not of the circumcised only, but of all who have faith, like his. The promise, the full scope of the promise extends not only to the Jews, but even to those who are not Jews, provided they have a faith like Abraham. But then in verse 13, which is now our present concern in characteristic fashion, Paul pushes the argument one step further. The issue uh, may be stated like this, the concern of these verses, these five verses, verses 13 through 17. What is the role of faith? Paul has made so much of faith. And here he has told us in verses 9 through 12, not only that Abraham was justified by faith, and not only that his, his natural descendants might be justified by faith, but even the whole world might be justified by faith and thus considered as children. It's clear that Paul is pinpointing the centrality of faith. But why does he make so much of faith? And it is this concern, the concern of faith, which Paul says is the central concern of the Christian life. It is the hinge upon which everything turns. This concern which will take us to the end of the chapter. And so in verse 13 he states... Is a matter of principle which ought to be self-evident and which can be proved at the same time, namely, that the promise that he, that is Abraham, would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. This, like the issue of when was he justified, uncircumcised or circumcised, the issue of how the promise came to him is a matter which can be settled decisively from history. And the answer is that the promise came to him, as Abraham states. 
in the realm and through the manner of faith, not through the law. God did not bring the law to Moses as he did to, Mo, or to Abraham as he did to Moses. He brought the righteousness of faith to Abraham. And then the law came later. Now just table that thought for a moment because that's what we're going to unpack. But what you see right away in verse 13 is that Paul is stating this in terms of a contrast between the law and the promise. And that's the contrast we'll be considering this morning. The contrast between the law and the promise. And inherent in that contrast are other features, such as faith and works, grace and merit, and these are contrasted as well. Just as the promise, faith, and grace cohere as part of a single system, a system that operated in the life of Abraham, so also are uh, all opposites of law, merit, and works. Faith, promise, grace on the one hand, law, merit, works on the other. And seeing this contrast will make perfectly plain what he is saying in verse 13 is true. Again, that the promise which God made to Abraham that he would be the heir of the world did not come to Abraham through the giving of the law, but simply through the giving of righteousness through faith, which we read about in Genesis 15. And notice that's that's the main thought here, which is, again, a matter of history. But having stated that, he then goes on to work this idea out by stating a series of four principles all of which prove the main assertion. And the first principle, which he states in verse 14, can be divided into two statements. He says, first, if those who are of the law, that is, those who operate in the realm or the system of the law, seeking to be justified and to become heirs of the promise through the law, in other words, if the law becomes the medium through which the promise is realized rather than faith, If it is through the law that we are made heirs, Paul says, faith is made void. Again, obviously so because of the contrast involved in these things. If by the law, then not by faith. If by the faith, not by law. Now, what does he mean when he says, if the promise comes to us through the law, faith is made void? Well, he's speaking of Abraham. He's saying that Abraham's faith, which justified him, becomes void. Instead of justifying him, it does nothing. It no longer helps him. Being confronted with the promise, his faith does nothing for him. Not only for him, but also to all of his children that Paul has been speaking of. If the promise is to be realized through the the law, that is through human observance, if God sets conditions upon us that we must fulfill in order to become the heirs, so that in essence we are the ones who bring about salvation and not God, then faith is made void. It is a useless category, and we might as well stop talking about it. And so he says, next, in the same verse, not only is faith made void, but the promise is of no effect. The promise is made of no effect. There is, in this case, if the realization of the promise depends upon the law, no promise at all. For as soon as the law comes in and man's realization of the promise is made to depend upon his law keeping and his works, the promise is empty and has no value to man. It is made of no effect. That is the sense here. Man is therefore uh, and thereby asked to fulfill conditions he cannot meet. He is asked to be his own savior. And God might as well, Paul is saying, in that case, not have even made the promise. There would be no use, Paul is saying, for God to have said anything to Abraham with respect to himself or his heirs. He might as well have uh, left Abraham as he was in a state of sin and misery and rebellion, 
under the wrath of God. Rather than bothering to promise Abraham anything, if the fulfillment and the realization of that promise was made to depend upon Abraham and his law keeping. The reason for this, this is the first principle, if it is through the law, faith is made void and the promise is obliterated. But the reason for this is our second principle, which is stated in verse 15. And that is, because the law brings about wrath. And I don't remember which translation, whether it's ESV or King James, but I've always read it and and said it as the law works wrath. So that's what I'm going to say here. The law works wrath. And this is a principle, beloved, which we all ought to grasp. So much of our grasp of the gospel and of the Christian life hinges upon the simple point. It was because the Jews and even many of these Christians in Paul's days did not grasp the point that the law works wrath always and invariably in the life of the sinner. That they could not grasp the gospel and they could not grasp the way of faith in relation to the promise. And so they really weren't walking in any sense like Abraham was walking. The reason, Paul says, that the reason the promise is made of no effect as soon as the law enters in, as soon as the promise is made to depend upon the law, that is our law keeping, is because the law doesn't help. The law cannot help a sinner. In fact, he states it as strongly as this. The law in every way and in every sense mitigates against the promise in total fashion. It does not work the promised salvation. It works wrath. Understand, that is the opposite of the promise. How then could anyone look upon the promise and say, by the law, rather than by faith? And this is because, uh, as Paul clarifies in the second part of the verse, where there is law, or excuse me, where there is no law, there is no transgression. What he means, he is speaking into the situation he has been describing in chapters 1 through 3, that the wrath of God is being revealed against sinful and fallen and depraved humanity. The operative principle is sin. Man is under the dominion and the power of sin. That is the situation that Paul is addressing. And what he is saying is that in that situation, the law always and invariably operates in this fashion. It always and ever works wrath. And it never does anything else to the sinner. It always condemns. It never helps in a positive fashion with respect to the promise. It does not bring salvation and life. It brings condemnation and wrath. It is true, Paul says, where there is no law, there is no transgression. But what he's saying is that the law serves to clarify the sinfulness of sin. But where there is law and sin exists, as in our case, that is precisely what we see. Not just the presence of sin, but its sinfulness. As though, uh, to, to state the matter in the positive fashion, which he here states negatively, where there is law, there is transgression. And that is precisely what we find here. That that through the law, sin is abounding, as he'll later say in Romans chapter 5, verse 20. And the purpose of the law is to highlight it, the presence of sin, the sinfulness of sin for all to see. Romans chapter 3, verse 19, which I've already quoted. Romans chapter 5, verse 20, which I just quoted. And Romans chapter 7, 
verses 7 and 8, but really the whole of the chapter. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. For I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said you shall not covet. But sin taking opportunity by the commandment produced in me all manner of evil desire. For apart from the law, sin was dead. That's what he means when he says, for where there is no law, there is no transgression. All of these statements are to the same effect. But if we are really to grasp the, the, the effect of what Paul is describing here, the way that the law operates in this, this totally negative fashion with respect to the promise in a situation where sin is abounding, that is our situation, in the situation of humanity ever since man fell into sin, what we really need to do is to read this passage in tandem with Galatians 3, which is precisely what we've done. In reading Romans chapter 4, we've also read Galatians chapter 3. And what Paul does there, uh, much more helpfully, I think, is to unpack the idea that we are presently considering and perhaps clarifying uh, a few points that we may have asked. And that is, again, with respect to the relation of the law to the promise. The question which we have is, again, from a historical standpoint, recognizing that when God made the promise to Abraham, he did not make the promise by giving Abraham the laws he later did to Moses but that he offered everything to Abraham simply as a matter to be grasped by faith, by which then he was justified. That's what Paul means by the righteousness of faith. Why did God do it in that way? Why was the law added? Why was it given at all, seeing that the promise was already made to Abraham before the law was given and was not made to depend upon the law for its fulfillment? That's what Paul answers in Galatians chapter 3, and without going there and, and doing a detailed exegesis, I just want to make four brief points from that passage. The first is just for us to see, very helpfully, that the law was added. Let us recognize that in the scheme and the unfolding of redemption, again, the question of history, just as with circumcision, Abraham was justified as uncircumcised, so too was he justified before the law was given to Moses, to the people of Israel. Which in itself, as with his uncircumcised status when justified, clarifies a great deal to us. Just as circumcision came after the promise was made and believed by Abraham, so can we say as a matter of biblical history that the law which was given through Moses came after the promise which was given to Abraham. In fact, unlike circumcision, which was, I think, uh, 17 years later, the law came 400 years later. And because it came later in the history which is recorded in the Old Testament, it is clear as day that the law which was given through Moses to Israel was secondary in this matter of the promise. And something that must be seen as offered in addition to the promise, but not, uh, but not of the essence of the promise, since the promise could exist for so long without the giving of the law. Well, why was it added, Paul said, as a second point? He says, uh, in similar fashion here, the law works wrath. For the, where there is no law, there is no transgression. He says the same thing in Galatians 3. It was added because of transgressions. All these years later, what made God give the law through Moses to Israel, the natural seed of Abraham, was sin. God gave the law through Moses in addition to the promise made to Abraham. In essence, because something needed to be done about sin. Read the long history from Abraham to Moses. And tell me if it's a long history of faith or a long history of sin. It's a long history of sin. 
And so when God gave the, the law through Moses, not just the Ten Commandments, but all these laws beside, which clarified the Ten Commandments, what God was doing was placing a magnifying glass upon the problem. He was clarifying and defining sin. He was highlighting it. And even we could say to some extent, sin was so rampant in the life of Israel, he was curtailing it. But another thing that he says is a third point is that it was added until the promised seed should come. It was promised until, in other words, the promise made to Abraham could come to a total fulfillment. And in this sense, we could say that it is an intermediary step in the line which we can draw between the promise and fulfillment. There is something which stands in between, and that is the giving of the law which was added. It was not, we understand, essential to the fulfillment of the promise. The promise was not made to depend upon the law. It was not the means by which the promise would come to pass. But it by no means had no purpose in the meantime. God added it for a specific reason. And so Paul says as a fourth point, that it is certainly not against the promise. It might be against the way of faith, let us see, but it is not against the promise. In other words, God didn't give the law to overturn the promise. He was not negating what he earlier promised. That's Paul's whole point in Galatians chapter 3. He was actually upholding it in a way that only God could uh, through this beautiful irony, through its opposite. Paul in Galatians chapter 3 clarifies the relationship between the law and the promise. The law was not added to the promise to give righteousness and life. Only the promise could do that and the promise believed that is by faith. And it was not given, let me say again, in order to bring the promise to fulfillment. Only God could do that. But it was given rather to help the seed of Abraham to see the need for faith all the greater. In other words, to clarify the nature, the essential nature of the promise and the way we are to relate to that promise, namely by faith. How clear this became. The sinfulness of man. Under the tutelage of the law. That the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. That's what Paul says in Galatians chapter 3. What we see under the tutelage of the law is not, well, I might be justified by works after all. What we see rather, who have spiritual discernment, is that the only way for this promise to be fulfilled is by faith in Jesus Christ, the coming of the promised seed. And until he came, the law served only to highlight the dilemma and to make it clearer all the time that the promise was by faith and not by works. And all the while, if we were to take these two passages together, while Israel lived under the tutelage and even the bondage of the law, all the while it was working wrath. It was not helping with respect to the giving of life and justification and everlasting uh, uh, life, uh, life, righteousness, and I can't remember the third category. At any rate, he says it in Romans chapter 5, but it wasn't helping in these positive ways. It was working wrath. It was hurting and yet, as I say in this blessed irony, it was helping them at the same time. It was helping them to see this law can never save. The law which God gave through Moses. It must therefore have another purpose. It must be given in order to help me to see the need to be saved by faith. Until, Paul says, until the promised seed should come who is Jesus. 
And so let me just stop here and try to apply this point a little bit to the church today. And ask you as Christians in the 21st century, as Paul was speaking, well, to some Jews and to some Gentiles in the first century, are you clear about this point? Are you clear about the idea that he is describing here that the law works wrath in the situation where sin is prevailing and abounding? And let me just say that there are a few errors which are so catastrophic to our faith in the gospel as misunderstanding the place and the purpose of the law in relation to the promise. The greatest tragedy of the one who misunderstands this is that he falls prey to legalism. And so much of the New Testament is given as, uh, let us say, uh, a polemic or just a preaching against the errors of legalism. That hard road of uncertainty and resentment. Wondering if God will ever be pleased with our puny efforts. How often even the faithful have gone down this path only to find themselves robbed of all peace and true joy in believing. Is anything so disastrous to the Christian life as legalism? Legalism does not mean, let us be careful here, it does not mean I am concerned to follow God's law in a detailed way. Jesus tells us to do that. Legalism is saying the law works life. In one way or another, it works life. It really is the thing that saves me. It's the thing that justifies me. If I want to be alive to God, if I want to inherit the promises to Abraham, I need to be a good, obedient law keeper. The problem is you never quite get there. And the longer that you live under the tutelage of the law, the worse your state becomes. And the greater your resentment becomes to God. There is no harder road than this road. And so we see that legalism leads on to a total loss of assurance, which is the great thing that Paul is laboring after here. We're going to see this as we go on with Romans 4, but especially as we arrive at what he says in Romans chapter 8. What he wants is Christians who have certainty about the gospel, not those who are wavering about and buffeted by every form of false teaching to which they are susceptible. Christians who are strongly rebuffing the errors of legalism on the one hand and antinomianism on the other. Christians who are established in the gospel and who can say with assurance, who can separate me from the love of God? I am persuaded fully. I am assured. I am pardoned. I am justified. Nothing and no one can rob me of that. Not even my own sin. That is the goal of the Christian life. But you will never arrive at that goal unless you understand the relationship of the law and the promise to the promise. And what is more, let me also say, as we go on with Romans chapter 4, not only does it rob us of our destination in this life, which is a full assurance of faith unto the end, or I think it's a full assurance of hope unto the end from Hebrews, but it makes in the meantime walking by faith impossible, which is the great thing which Paul is here setting before us. If you read Romans chapter 4 in tandem with Hebrews chapter 11, you see... Both passages are contending, not only for the inception of the Christian life as walking by faith, but the entirety of it, ever confronted with the word of God and his promise. Faith means my certainty that God's word is true. We're going to see that very soon. That is what was true of Abraham, and that's what ought to be true of you. And you ought always to be walking in light of your certainty that God's word is true. But you'll never get there through the law. If you try to get there through the law, you'll be like Christian in Pilgrim's Progress who strayed away from the path. 
and he started to try uh, to get to the heavenly Jerusalem by Mount Sinai. And the further he walked up the mountain, you remember the scene, he was confronted with the terrors, the lightning, the fire. And the higher he got, he felt like the mountain was going to fall on his head. That's what the Christian is like who tries to get to heaven by keeping the law. Always remember, this is an axiom, this is a principle of the Christian life. The law works wrath. It always does. Not where there is no transgression, it is true. We can't put, place this principle in the garden and see it as effective. There was no sin. But just as soon as sin enters into the world, we recognize the law always sustains this relationship. If we strive to live by the law, we will not find righteousness and life. We will find the opposite. And this is something that we will either learn from scripture or by hard experience. But the other side of this, as we come to the third principle, having stated negatively that the law works wrath, he is concerned positively in verse 16 to say that the promise is by grace. He is concerned to highlight the gracious nature of the promise in contrast to the legal condemning nature of the law. And so he says in verse 16 that that it, it being the realization of the promise to Abraham and his seed, it is or was according to faith so that it might be according to grace. That is, the promise was made in accordance with faith so that, as promise, it might be a matter of grace. And so on the other side of appreciating the contrast and the antithesis between the law and the promise, we must also appreciate the same thing, or excuse me, we must also appreciate at the same time the way faith, grace, and the promise cohere and coincide. For God to promise something to Abraham was for God to offer terms to Abraham which were purely gracious. They were not legal, they were gracious. God was not working wrath when he promised something to Abraham, he was working grace. Since it was God's promise, and it was his assurance to Abraham that this was something he would do that makes it a matter of grace, not a matter of law. In other words, as John Murray says, promise is the assurance of gracious bestowment. It is a free gift. Promise is a free gift. God is not telling Abraham what he must do. He's telling Abraham what God is going to do for Abraham. That is the very nature of a divine promise. A promise involves a gracious bestowment of a gift by its very nature. But in order to be consistent, not only can it not be by law, Paul is saying, but positively, the promise must be of faith. Or else it couldn't be according to grace. It would lose its gracious nature if it required Abraham to do anything other than to believe the bare word of God. To believe the promise as it came to him. And this is what we'll look more closely at next time, verses 18 through 22. The way Abraham believed the word of God as it came to him. And as the promise comes to us, and, and I'm saying that we are like Abraham. We are living under the word of God. God is always speaking to us. His promise ever stands. And as that promise comes to man, all that the promise asks of us is that we believe it. Which means that we accept it as true and certain. In other words, 
We do not need to see the fulfillment in order to believe it is really so, that God's word is really certain. We are content solely to have the promise itself, the bare word of God. Again, faith is my certainty that God's word is true. And all this, you see, fits perfectly together. Therefore, it is of faith that it might be according to grace. But just as soon as it is according to law, it no longer retains its gracious character. Indeed, it's opposite. And thus, faith is obliterated and the promise is made of no effect. Verse 14. The whole thing is ruined. And it is this, Paul says, that makes the whole thing certain. So that the promise might be sure to all the seed. Not only to those who are of the law, but those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. What is it that gives us certainty along with Abraham? It is the fact that the promise is by grace and not by works. But that leads us on to a fourth principle which undergirds our certainty of the promise. Because the gracious nature of the promise, this is the fourth point which Paul highlights in in verse 17, the gracious nature of the promise is founded upon him who promised. And so listen to what he says in verse 17. He restates the promise as it is written, I have made you a father of many nations in the presence of him whom he believed. God who gives life to, to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did. And so Abraham, or Paul here is concerned to tell us not just of the gracious nature of the promise, but even before that, the gracious nature of he who promises. And that is what, uh, what not only gives uh, the promise its gracious effect, but it is also the foundation upon which the faith of Abraham and ours depends as well. We believe the word of God because it is the word of God. Now that's actually what the confession says. And because we know who God is, a God full of grace, a God full of power. We know that whatever he says is bound to come true and we don't need to doubt it. We are able simply to accept it because we stand like Abraham in the presence of him who promises. And what is true of him who promises? Well, Paul tells us two things about him. Two things that Abraham realized As God was promising to Abraham these very things. Again, he stood in his presence. He heard the word of God. And he was conscious not only of the word itself. But of the God who spoke those words. God who gives life to the dead. Paul is saying that the God who promised and in whose presence the promise was made to Abraham. Is a God who gives life to the dead. And that Abraham, let us see, was conscious of this very thing as God made the promise. It isn't, in other words, something that was simply true, but it was something that Abraham realized and believed was true about God. Now, in one sense, what Paul is saying is that God is all powerful to say that he gives life to the dead is to say he can do something that no man can do. In other words, that there is nothing that he cannot do and that if that is true, that God, as he makes the promise, is a God who is able to raise the dead then anything he promises is not too difficult to perform. And so that really ought to settle the matter right there. There is nothing God cannot do. And so for him simply to say it is enough. But we can look at this statement at the same time and realize that more is being said. God who gives life to the dead. 
with respect to the promise and the faith of Abraham. Certainly more is being said. For one thing, we know that Abraham later demonstrated his belief in this very thing when he was prepared to offer his son Isaac upon the altar. We know he believed it because he made his faith to depend upon it. He believed, as Hebrews later says, and as is evident in Genesis chapter 22, that God is able, uh, he believed that God was able to raise up his son, even if he should have slayed him, which we know he didn't. His faith in God was that strong. But even beyond that, we have a reference here to Abraham's faith in the promise itself. And what was the promise? It was the promise of a seed, even a savior. Abraham, looking forward to his day, was glad. The fulfillment of the promise. And as he looked forward to the fulfillment of that promise, the coming of the promised seed, what he believed was that God was able to raise the dead. And do you see the relevance of this to Abraham's faith and to ours with respect to what God was promising? For we know that God would not only send his son, the promised seed, into the world, but that that promised seed would die and that God would raise him up again, demonstrating the truth that Abraham believed here, that God, in making the promise, is able to raise the dead. And you see that Paul is saying here that Abraham, in the presence of God, believed that very thing, that God could even raise this promised seed from the dead. Being aware of God's almighty power, he knew that God gives life to the dead. And later the promise would depend entirely upon this very point. And so Abraham's faith in ours. But the next thing that we see said about God is who calls things which do not exist as though they do. And here again is a reference to the seed of Abraham. Abraham was childless, but God, in pointing to the stars, told Abraham that he would be the father of a multitude. He was calling things to be as though they were, though they were not presently. And that is what Abraham believed. He believed solely because God is able to speak of things which do not yet exist as though they did. The promise was enough for him. God can refer to future events as certainties because he knows what he's going to do. And faith merely lays hold on that. Again, the primary relationship to faith is to the word of God. It doesn't even need to see the fulfillment. It merely rests upon the word of God and the God who promises. It rests upon the fact that the God who speaks is able to perform all that he speaks. And indeed, upon the certainty that he will. For God to say that he will do it makes the thing certain. Abraham there without a single child was promised a multitude. And just like that, it was made certain to Abraham and to his faith. The matter was settled there. And so I ask you here as I close, but you see, we're going to continue down this path together. Do you see, in answer to the question which I asked earlier, why Abraham is making so much of faith with respect to the promise, with respect to our justification, with respect to the whole of the Christian life? Do you see the importance and the centrality of faith in the life of Abraham and in the life of his children? That the promise be made sure and be brought to fulfillment by faith and not by the law, which is to say, by grace alone. Do you realize that in the presence of the promise that all that, all that God is asking you to do simply is to believe it and nothing else? And then, having believed, are you walking by faith, as Paul says later on, and not by sight, which is to say, 
by the law, looking for things that you can do? Are you resting and are you receiving everything that God has said? And solely upon that. Do you believe in God's almighty power as demonstrated in raising Jesus from the dead and in calling things into being which do not presently exist, at least in the life of Abraham, even as we later discover and experience now ourselves the formation of the church, the sons of Abraham, the multitude that was promised to him? Are you able to see by faith that even now God is fulfilling what he promised to Abraham? Well, more on that next time. Uh, For now, let us come to the table.